0: Good morning. morning. It's good to see so many here this morning. Um, hmm. Over the past five weeks, we've been going through a study through the book of Malachi. And I think what we've discovered is, is this is a book that is calling God's chosen people back to worshiping Him. It's really a plea from God to the people to come back to worshiping me genuinely. In the bigger picture of what's happening in uh, the people's history, they've returned from the Babylonian exile. They've come back to Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple. And there was so much anticipation whenever they were returning. They were expecting God to, to be their God and to bless them and to provide them with all of these different things. And when they get there, they find themselves discouraged because they're not being blessed the way that they want. And, and instead, God has this burden, this weight placed on the heart of God's prophet and who, who we are referring to as Malachi, the speaker in this book. And he has this burden because he sees that there's corruption in the way that the people are worshiping. So far we've addressed several specific condemnations from God. We've seen and even asked ourselves the question, what does this issue mean to us and how does it apply to us? What was the root sin that caused these specific condemnations to come into being? And what I haven't shared with you is my frustration so far through the book of Malachi is that up until now, all the way from chapter 1 to chapter 3, we have not come across a root cause. We've addressed specific issues, but so far God has not revealed the surface issue that caused all of those baby issues to come into being. We were reminded of God's sovereign love, His sovereign choosing love, and how that revealed that the people did not fear God. They they lacked a reverence for who He was, their relationship to Him. We were reminded of the significant portions of worship, that worship starts in the heart, and that without the correct attitude, it doesn't matter what we do, that it revealed, again, the complacency of the people in worshiping God. We were reminded of the sanctity of marriage. In fact, the sanctity of the covenants that we maintain, and how that pointed to a straying heart. Not just in marriage, but in our relationships with God, because we looked that the people were not just divorcing their wives, but they were also divorcing, marrying wives of other nations and worshiping idols. There were straying hearts. And I will admit, while we didn't find a root cause issue, we did look at two weeks ago what the cure might be. That through the purification, the the ministry of sanctification that was promised when God would send His messenger, when Jesus would come and provide sanctification to the saints, that we can rely on Him... Instead of relying on us. But even then, I think looking at that passage, we might be able to understand that there is an issue of self-reliance in the people. And then just last week, even after looking at the ultimate cure for the problems that we're addressing, we looked at a condemnation that came from God that revealed the selfishness of the people in withholding their tithes from God. What I'm asserting is that all of these condemnations, all of these consequences are a result of a root cause issue. Here's what I mean by root cause. One cause causes something else which has another consequence, and this is a chain of events. The root cause is a single cause that when we actually address it and eliminate it, it prevents everything else from coming into being. The problem is, we don't always know what we need. We don't always know what we're dealing with. Imagine for a second you have a headache. And this headache goes on and it lasts for an entire week. And so you make your way to the doctor because headaches should not last for a week. And you go to the doctor and you tell the doctor, Doc, I have this headache and I need you to fix it. And so the doctor does what he should do. He examines you. First thing is they strap the cuff on and they listen to your, your, your heart rate or your blood pressure and your heart rate. And the doctor notes, oh, did he notice you had an elevated heart rate too? And then he gets out the tongue depressor and he pushes down your tongue and he says, And did you notice your mouth is really dry? And the doctor says, I think I know what's wrong. And he leaves and he comes back and he, he he leaves and he comes back and he has the cure for your headache. It's three pills: a red pill, a blue pill, and a yellow pill. So he hands you the red pill and he says, Here's what you're going to do to fix your headache. I need you to take this red pill every morning, as soon as you wake up, with at least sixteen ounces of water. With the blue pill, you take that at lunchtime. This is going to fix your elevated heart rate. Drink it with at least 16 ounces of water. final pill, the yellow pill, right before you go to bed at night, every single night, take this yellow pill with 16 ounces of water. It's going to fix the dry mouth. So he's given us these three cures. And so we ask, what's the problem that we're dealing with? He says, it's simple. You're dehydrated. You're not drinking enough water. We don't always know what we actually need. Sometimes we try to address a headache when we should be addressing dehydration. Our goal this morning, the purpose of the book, Malachi, this last book in the Old Testament, is to call God's people back. To say, come back and worship me the way that you're supposed to be worshiping me. Come back and worship me. But to do that, you've got to address all of these issues. You have to fear me the way that you're supposed to fear me. You have to come with the right attitude whenever you come to worship me. It's not just a routine that you go through. You can't be complacent in it. You have to honor me in your life. You've got to understand that marriage is something bigger than just two people. I was there and I was witness to the covenant that you made with your wife. And I'm using your marriage as a picture to the rest of the world of what my relationship with you looks like. Come back and worship me with your life. Don't rely on yourself to do all of these things. Because you've already proven that you're going to mess it up. Rely on me, my ministry, the power of sanctification in your life. And just to make sure you don't forget. Just to make sure you remember you can't do it without me. Honor me with your tithe. Now let's address the root cause that all of these other issues spin off of. We'll find it in our text this morning. Let's turn Malachi chapter three, picking up where we left off, we're starting in verse thirteen, and we'll be reading through to verse eighteen. The word of God says, "Your words have been hard against me," says the Lord. But you say, "How have we spoken against you?" You have said, "It is vain to serve God." What is the prophet? of our keeping His charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before Him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed His name they shall be mine says the Lord of hosts in the day when I make up my treasured when I take I'm sorry in the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The first thing I want to point out from our text this morning is that God's listening to the details. We've already talked a little bit about how the attitude that we come to worship is so important. We talked about that several weeks ago. And if you want to hear more about that, I'd invite you to go back on our church website and you can listen to those sermons. They're recorded for you to listen to. But look how quickly God picks up on the attitude of the people Your words have been hard against me, he says. This is in response to listening to the people talking amongst each other. These things that they've said. They've they've said that it's vain to worship God. What profit is it to keep his charge or to walk in his ways? To to be as in mourning before before the Lord of hosts. Calling the arrogant blessed. And what God says is, I hear your arrogance. He picks up on this so quickly. He hears the attitude in the things that we say. He picks up on the subtleties of arrogance in the words of the people. And again, the people, in response to what God has revealed about them. They respond defensively and dismissively. They say, but how have we spoken hard against you, God? Do you notice that response? Do you see that? The defensiveness, the defiance. God, the one who created the entire universe, the the God who made everything spin into creation, has just said, your words are hard against me, and the people, their response is, "How? What do you mean? Like God doesn't know. They're dismissive. What do you mean our words are hard against you? Those aren't hard words. I, those words were about me. I said, "It's vain to worship you. There's nothing to do with you." God. They're dismissive. They're defiant. And this this issue is the root cause for all of the condemnations that we've read about so far is clearly revealed here when we look at it in this way. Because this is the nature of all of us. We don't like to admit when we're wrong. We don't like to admit when there's something Inside of us that we need to work on. Is that true? We're quick to say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we're quick to even say, and by the way, I'm included in that. But how many of us dig deeper than that and can admit to specific sins? It's easy to say that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that I'm included with everybody. But when, when we address specific issues, when we talk about specific sins like selfishness or self-righteousness or pride, how many of us can say, that's me? We run away from it. When we're confronted with God's word, we run away from it because, because I, I can acknowledge the fact, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I need God. And yes, I want to worship him. But when God comes and says, your words have been hard against me because your attitude is hard against me, because you think worshiping me is vanity, our response is to say, what do you mean? I'm a humble servant. we run away from confronting the truth. This is the root cause issue. We think we're better than we actually are. The reason for everything in the book of Malachi is the people think they're better than they actually are. They're self-righteous. And they've gotten it all backwards. Here's the problem with self-righteousness. It causes the people to see things unclearly. It it muddies up their vision. Look, look at how their their pride, their self-righteous pride has caused them to regard God's justice. They say evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and then they escape. Their pride's turned into bitterness against God. They're asking for God's judgment on the people who are, who are getting ahead in life because they aren't living as pietous as they are. And their pride has converted over to bitterness, which has caused their hearts to wander. Isn't this the issue we talked about when we talked about the sanctity of marriage? And it started with pride. It caused them to see things wrong. They don't even understand what God's asking for when He says to worship Him. Look at how they're describing the worship that God is asking for. They describe it as walking in mourning, putting on sackcloth and rubbing ashes on their face. As if God just wants us to be miserable. Don't you know that when God asks you to do something, when he commands you to do something, that it's for your better good? That he asks it for your benefit? I mean, we've talked a whole lot about this fact that that God doesn't care about our happiness as much as he cares about our holiness. But when we put that into the right order, when we're holy, what are the benefits of that? joy, peace. God asks us to do things for our benefit. He doesn't need anything from us. He chose us sovereignly, picked us up and decided that we would be His people. And He gives us commands and they're for our benefit. Worshipping God isn't walking around as in mourning. But maybe when we're self-righteous, maybe when we're prideful, our vision is distorted enough that that is what it looks like. We have to be careful of these mistaken values what caused the people to become like this, to see things upside down? These aren't strangers to God. These are God's chosen people. They, they've come back from the Babylonian exile. They've rebuilt the temple. These are, these are God's people. And, and they've still got it backwards. What caused them to, to wind up like this? As I was studying one of the things that I made note of between verses 13 and verse 15 where we're describing this conversation that the people are having with God where he's condemning them. Notice that everything that the people say puts an emphasis on what they get in return. They, they talk about what should it profit us to worship God. I see others get blessed. I see others prosper. Their values are backwards. They want to worship God so that it will return something to them. Worshiping God to them is an investment exercise. I invest in God so that He will return to me blessings. Again, they have it backwards. We have to be careful Of mistaking what we value. If our values aren't right, we're going to look at things upside down like the people, and we will develop pride, which will turn into bitterness, which will turn into a wandering heart, which is in genuine worship. Not just that, but our conscience becomes dull. The people know that these people that they're looking at, that they're comparing themselves to are living evil lives. But they say it's vain to worship God. What does it matter? Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And suddenly the way that they perceive the actions of these evildoers isn't as significant as it should be. It isn't reflective of what God sees it as. and These people, the pride, thinking they're better than they are, has caused them to, instead of comparing these people to God's standard, to compare them to their standard, and therefore, what they're doing doesn't look so bad. They're less concerned about what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. They, in fact, see evil as a means of getting what they want, what they value, their profit, their blessings, their prosperity. No wonder all of these other issues of valuing things the wrong way that we've addressed so far through the book of Malachi, why it's come up. To see things clearly... To see things from God's perspective, we have to put things through the lens of eternity in our lives. What happens today or tomorrow is small in the lens of eternity. The blessings we might want, not need, but want, they aren't going to matter in eternity. Serving God consistently, faithfully, that is what will matter in eternity. When we get to heaven, at the mercy seat judgment, when we're face to face with our Savior, and we're able to present to Him the refined treasure of our faithfulness. All these other wants won't matter. If we want to avoid having the self-righteous and arrogant attitude of the people, we've got to get that perspective right. That way we can see even God's justice isn't something for us to judge. Because there is a day coming, not just when we will be judged for our faithfulness, but when those who have failed to put their faith in Christ will be judged for their wickedness. God is just. His timeline is bigger and greater and more than we can even comprehend. And it is foolishness. This is what I mean by arrogant. For a human to say that they are God's people and to sit back and to ask God, why are you not judging these evildoers? As if we were able to comprehend His timeline at all. But there's a cure. There is a cure. Of course, it comes back to this ministry of sanctification we talked about a couple of weeks ago. This progressive holiness that we might continually be refined. That our lives might become more reflective of what God would have for us. That our lives would be purified and and that we would be able to worship God. But what would it cause us to do? If we keep reading into verse 16, the answer is clear that there was a faithful remnant among the people whose words were hard against God. And these people, they spoke amongst each other, too. And we don't really know what they say, but the Bible says that they feared the Lord and they were speaking with one another. And that while they were doing this, God was paying attention to them. And he heard the words that they were saying, just like he heard the words of the people that were hard against him in the previous section. He hears the words that these people are saying, but he doesn't say your words are hard against me. Instead, he says, your name will be recorded in this book of remembrance because I'm going to remember your faithfulness. But what caused these people to be different than the other, to be more holy than the other? more set apart from the other. What was it that they were doing? They feared God. When we've been purified, when we've submitted ourselves and we've re- relied on the power of the Holy Spirit to refine us, to cleanse us, when we've relied on it to make us more holy and, and, and to reveal to us these sins, and we're come to it with humbleness, and we don't, when we're confronted with the truth, our self-righteousness or our pride or our selfishness, we don't say, "Oh, well, that's not me." But we allow it to happen. We ask God to reveal our own hearts to ourselves. I want to quit using the word hour in sermons because I can't pronounce it right. But when we, we allow this to happen and, and we allow ourselves to be cleaned and we don't rely on ourselves to do the work, but we're transparent about it, not just with God. But look, these people, they're, they're not just talking to God, are they? They're, they're talking to one another, aren't they? They're speaking with one another. They have transparent relationships and, and they're they're admitting Not only that I'm a sinner, that I need Jesus, but they're admitting that I'm selfish, that I'm self-righteous. I think I'm better than I actually am. And they've been purified and they've begun to fear God the way that they're supposed to. All the way back to the beginning of this book, the whole issue, God said that my name will be feared among the nations. And here here we find that this remnant, these people who have submitted themselves to be cleaned and to be purified, they feared God and they spoke with one another. Because fearing God is the natural response to recognizing who God is and who I am and the infinite gasp between the two. When we realize how much greater God is than us, our natural response is to fear Him. And we re- when we realize how just it is for God to judge the world, when we recognize how fair it is that the wicked be cast into a lake of fire for all of eternity, completely separated from God's presence for all time. And we think about how awful that is. And, and when, we think, when we really understand it, and we start to put it into perspective of, I deserve that. It's fair for people to get that. It's just that people wind up there. We fear God with reverence because He's chosen us, because He placed a burden on our hearts that we might be able to respond to His grace, that we might be able. To have our names written in the, the book of life that we might not experience that isolation and that separation from God. Because not only is it fair, but it doesn't even make sense when we start to think about the grace of God. That He provides a way for us to have a relationship with Him. Fearing God is a natural response to understanding who He is. And it produces, inside of us, genuine worship. It causes us to come to God with the right attitude because we realize who He is. Not only that, but when we start to understand what sin is from God's perspective, we start to look at all of these other issues, a lack of reverence for God, a wandering heart, selfishness, self-righteousness, And we begin to hate these sins the way that God hates these sins. And it motivates us to turn away from these things. Because we realize what these are actually doing. The way that they're corrupting us. The way that they're damaging us. They're poisoning us. And it causes us to turn back to God in repentance the way that He wants us to turn back to Him. I want you to look at the people, this faithful remnant in in verses 16 through 18, who are gathered together. Look at how God describes them. He says that He'll write their name in this book of remembrance, but then He says that they're going to become a people of His own possession. His own possession. Think about how this is contrasting with the previous section of Scripture. The people who were wrapped up with asking God, where is your justice and and, it's vain to worship you? What does it profit me? Their entire emphasis was on what worship would get them. And here we find the people who are worshiping God genuinely. It's not about what worship gets them, but it's what it gets God. God says, these people will be my possession. Look at that major contrast. These people are concerned with what it means to honor God. They're not worried about what's going to happen to them. They want to honor God because of who He is, because of what He deserves. And those who feared become His possession. This phrase here is, it's actually, it's a word picture, this phrase here is, is that the people who fear God become like jewels to Him. Precious jewels. Cleaned up, the dirt's removed, polished, cut, refined. Precious jewels. Belonging to God. All because we put things in the right perspective. All because we allowed things to happen in the right perspective. Instead of worrying about what worship would get us, the faithful remnant were more concerned with what God actually wanted. They didn't misunderstand this instruction to walk around in mourning, to be wearing sackcloth and ashes on their face. Instead, they understood that what God wanted from them was to really know who He was. To fear Him. To respond to Him. We don't know what the people talked about whenever they gathered. Can I give you some supposition, though? I say that. I just want you to realize that this is me speaking. This isn't coming from the Bible. What the people might have been talking about, it's found in the beginning of this book. They're thinking about all the things the prophet Malachi has said They're considering God's love. That He selected them. That He chose them. And there was no reason for it. It wasn't because they deserved it more than their brother or than the people that God didn't choose. It was His sovereign choice. And they're considering what these things, these actions of worship, bringing sacrifices to the temple, they're considering what what this should actually look like. Why is it that we bring our best? Why is it that we we bring an unblemished lamb? What do these sacrifices mean? I think they were considering that it had little to do with the actual action and that it has everything to do with with our attitude. They're considering what this issue of marriage and covenants, they're they're considering what this meant. Why is marriage so important to the Christian? If we look at His Word, it's pretty clear. It was set up by God and God uses it throughout Scripture as a picture of His relationship with His church. And then they're considering what it means to be prepared for a day of judgment. What's that mean? What's it mean to be prepared for a day of judgment? First, Is your name in the book of life? Here's what that means. Has Jesus become your Savior? Have you realized you're not going to be good enough ever to get into heaven? And then have you submitted? Just like in marriage, submitted. To say, Jesus, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to worship you the way that you've commanded me to worship you. I think the people have started to understand what it means to be prepared for a day of judgment. And then I think the people started talking about how they've been robbing God. And how they can worship Him with their entire lives. And how not only that, but God doesn't need it. It's for their benefit so that they can continually remember with their tithes and with their sacrifices that everything that they have comes from God. I think that's what the people were talking about. And God heard them. God heard them speaking one to the other with humbleness, admitting their faults, with specificity, confessing their sins, having true biblical fellowship with one another. And God says, I will remember these people. These people will become my possession. My refined jewel. There's two crowds. There are those that think that they are better than they are. And because of that, they don't really acknowledge what God wants from them, and they don't really see it as necessary. The second crowd admits that they are nothing, and they come together, and they reflect on the one person who is everything. if God listened to our conversations that we have with one another, would He say that your words have been hard against me? Or would He smile and say I shall record their names in a book of remembrance? What are the things that we talk about? How do they reveal who we are to us? What are the things that we think about? If we prayed, God, reveal my heart to me. That I might be able to see me the way that you see me. Would we be willing to listen to God's response? Or would we respond with defiance and defensiveness and, and say that it's not worth our time, that we might be able to ignore it? What's God saying to us?